0: Welcome to this week's podcast, at Bergen Park Church, from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Hey, welcome to Bergen Park Church. We're glad that you guys have gathered with us this, this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10, if you want to grab a Bible. We'll be in Mark chapter 10, looking at verses seven uh, 7 through 27. So Mark chapter 10. 7 to 27, hey, we're in this series looking at the sin beneath the sin, which is the sin of idolatry. And it answers the question, why do we do what we do? That often we look at our behaviors, we look at the surface, we look at what's going on in our life, and we don't like what we're doing, but we don't take the time to really investigate what's going on beneath the surface of my life. What do I I want? And I don't know if you realize that's a pretty vital and important question, a question that God cares about. Jesus actually asked a man who is blind. He said, listen, what do you want from me? And I think that same question he asks to us, what, what do you want? And often our behaviors are driven by desires that we're unaware of, attachments that we don't even realize are there, but they're directing us and guiding us and leading us. And what we're doing in this series is really just taking some time to look beneath the surface and ask what's, what's going on? What's there? And I wanna show you an example of what this looks like. Now there's two types of idols i want to introduce you to today. One is called a surface idol, and the other is called a deep idol. And here's a picture of what that looks like. Now surface idols are just as they sound, they're actually on the surface of your life. They're things that you readily recognize, things you see, things you're aware of. Now, deep idols refer to the motivations that drive what's on the surface. And deep idols are the things you do not see. It's the stuff that you may not realize is driving you and directing you and kinda pushing you forward in life. Now, what are some of the surface idols? Here's a list of surface idols. And they're things that are apparent, they're concrete, money, success, Family, relationships, image, beauty, a political cause, a surface idol literally can be anything. In Romans one, it says we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. So surface idols, well, anything in creation. I mean, it's anything in your heart that you set up to take the place of God. Now deep idols, are not on the surface of our life, they're rather the motivations. And here's a list of four deep idols, and this comes from Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. And he says these are four motivations that are beneath the surface of our life. The first is power, which is influence, approval, appreciation, comfort, pleasure, control, security. When you look at that list, which one of those resonates in your own life? Are you somebody who pursues power? You wanna have influence. You wanna walk into the room and be seen as somebody with expertise, somebody that people recognize, they wanna know. Approval, that's mine. I wanna be accepted, and usually accepted by a group of people, and I'll give up power to get that, because power is not that important to me unless power leads to acceptance and approval, comfort. I want a comfortable life. I don't want stress. Often that's the deep idol that leads to the door of addiction. I don't wanna deal with stress and difficulty in life. Control, I need security. Now, those are those deeper idols that are beneath the surface, and today we're gonna talk about everybody's favorite idol, which is money. And the question becomes, which one of these deep idols really reflects your heart when it comes to money. If you go to the next slide. Because money is a surface idol, right? It's on the surface of your life. And all of us have that kind of person who pursues money in a way and we say, okay, that's greed. That's idolatry. Here's somebody who's living for their own pleasures. And you look at that person, they're spending lavishly, right? And you're like, hey, that's, that's the wrong way to approach money. And yet when I approach money, I'm approaching it from that area of security. Money for me in my own heart is a place of control. I wanna have it so that I don't feel like my life is so, so uneven. And all of us have that way of approaching money and we tend to look at others and we tend to judge them and how they pursue money Because we see it on the surface. Because some people live loud in money. They live large in money. They use money for power. It's a way of influencing others or a way of gaining approval. They spend lavishly on others. And then some of us are saving and we want that security. But see, money's not the issue. It's the attachment to money that's the issue. It's what we're trying to get. Now, as we talk about money today, there was a video that I watched this week and one of the challenges we have around money is in churches, we often don't have a rich view of vocation, which means work. And your work matters to God. God has created you and given you the talents and abilities to accomplish a great deal. And some of you have been incredibly successful. And so the work that you're doing is good and the results of those work that work is good. And I want you to, to watch this video that captures the value of our work. Things have in my walk in, in, business, in work in ministry is you got two things running. There you go. You guys got it. It's a really good video right now, it's <laughs> excellent. You're going to really love this. We got some technical difficulties. Here we go. Well, You think it'll work? It'll get there. We may come back to that. We may have an issue. You guys okay back there? You're doing a great job. The only time they get attention is when things break. And so thank you guys. Let's jump into into Mark chapter 10. Let's, Let's kind of shift gears and jump into the path. Maybe God's telling me I shouldn't have shown that. I don't know. I'm not sure. Let's jump into Mark chapter 10. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. Mark chapter 10, verse 7. Okay, we'll jump into it after the scripture. Thanks, guys. Thanks for working on that. Mark chapter 10, verse verse 7. Let me get there. That's not the right passage. Wow. It's 17, guys. Is God humbling me today? I feel so exposed right now. Have you ever been there? Let's talk about that today. It's going excellent. It's, 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 it's really, for, it, it can only get better. Verse 17, sorry, guys. I wrote verse 7, it's verse 17, the word of the Lord. And he was setting out on his journey and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Because no one is good except God alone. And you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to them, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. to go through the eye of a the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, "How can then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at him and he said, with man it is impossible, but, with, not, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Father, in this time, would you... Would you meet us here, would you calm my nerves and clear my head and allow the thoughts that you've placed there, Father, to flow freely, freely, and we set aside, Lord, and we want to, to search the heart, to know those issues that you want us to address, and certainly as we come to a passage like this, I imagine it lays, it, it can land heavy upon us, and so teach us and guide us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So it's a pretty simple story. A young man who's been successful in life and evidently quite moral comes to Jesus and he asks, a, I think, a fairly important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I be in right relationship with God? And it's interesting when you look at verse 17, the way that he approaches Jesus is with great humility. Now, I didn't have that as a young man, certainly If you have a lot of wealth and success as a young man, you don't tend to approach people with a lot of humility, and yet here's this guy who's been successful. He's done well. He comes to Jesus. Listen, as a pastor, this guy is your dream. He's humble. He's wealthy. He's successful. He's moral. He's everything that you could want, and yet there's something that's deeply missing, and he can't see it. And his money is keeping him from what he needs the most. And so we're going to look at this passage from three directions. First, the, tra- uh, the, the power that money has over us, the trap that money sets, and then how can we break free from that trap? First of all, the power that money has, the trap that it sets, and then how do we, how do we break free? You know, money has a power that makes demands over us. But those demands are often subtle. And the way we see that subtlety is here's somebody who feels like his devotion to God is pretty full. Because if you notice in the the storyline, he comes to Jesus, he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in verse 19, Jesus responds. He goes, you know the commandments. He's familiar with scripture. And he says, do not murder, do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he says, I got it. I got it. Teacher, I've kept all this since my youth. I'm good. Now, obviously, he doesn't think he's perfect, but he's committed. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, you have no idea what you're talking about. Instead, there's a, a reality of morality in his life, a love for God to some degree, and yet his money is blinding him from how much it's taking control of his life. I'm good, I just need a little bit of help. Jesus, help me. You know, scripture often warns us about the role that money plays in our lives. So Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And Jesus said, take care. Some translations have the phrase, watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of covetousness, which means greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Jesus is saying that possessions have a way of of giving us a sense of security in life, a sense of meaning in life, that we tend to look to what we have, to feel power, approval, comfort, control. And he says, watch out. And if Jesus is saying, watch out, We need to watch out. And yet the reality is, can we just be honest this morning? We don't think this is a problem. Right? Do we show up this morning feeling like greed is an issue for us? That money and possessions have a hold on? I'll be honest. I I didn't as I left my million-dollar home in Evergreen, Colorado. Now, I got in my Corolla, so that's not my beat-up Corolla because it's got teenage drivers now. I don't think it's an issue, and that's the point. Greed is something that hides. You know, do, not, do you remember the list, do not murder? We all know if we've murdered, right? Adultery. That's not something you're unaware of. Oops. Deceit. All of those things are apparent, but greed is the one thing that we just, we don't see. We don't recognize it, because it hides. And so if Jesus is saying, watch out, and greed is something that hides, can we just, can we start with the assumption it may be a problem for us? Because in terms of wealth, I can say I am rich. Certainly in the history of the world, certainly in the history of humanity today, I have extra, I have more than I need, I am rich. And the people Jesus was talking to had much less than we have today. And so if Jesus is speaking to people, I don't know how much this guy had, I'm kinda glad I don't know in Mark 10 how much this man showed up with, because then if he had more than me, then I'd be like, okay, obviously that's rich. But I think we have to start with that assumption, he's speaking to me. And if he's speaking to me, there's something that money and wealth has a hold on my heart. So watch out. And then Matthew chapter six, and you probably have heard this. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Now he could pick any number of two masters, right? God and anything. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money. Not God and Satan, God and sexuality, God and politics. For some reason, watch out, God and money. Money has a tremendous hold spiritually in our lives. And again, not because money itself is bad. It's what we're trying to get from it. We're trying to gain approval, power, comfort. I have control over my life because I have these resources and I don't, you ready for this? Need God. The dangers of wealth where poverty reminds me of my need. When you have no food and you have no money to feed your kids and you don't know what, where everything's coming from tomorrow, that takes you to a place of great vulnerability, doesn't it? Give us this day Our daily bread, I've rarely, I don't think I've ever had to pray that. And you know how hard it would be for me to be homeless? I would have to basically alienate everybody in this room and everybody in my life and waste every resource I have. For me to be homeless would take a great challenge in my own life to produce that. Money has this ability to keep us from being aware of our spiritual need for God. Because it steps in and says, you have enough, you are secure, and it whispers to us, you're good enough. How do you think you got here? Did you notice that in the story of the disciples? If you jump back into the passage later on when Jesus is saying, hey, it's going to be impossible for rich people, which is me, to enter the kingdom of heaven. And what do the disciples do? What? Are you kidding me? Those are the guys that are in. If you've got money and you've got wealth, then God must have placed his favor over your life. Because we think if I'm successful, then I must also be good. And that's a mentality that the disciples understood. They thought the wealthier you are, the more God has blessed you. The better, the more righteous you are. And it hides us. It hides our true condition. So the first reality is that money can have such a hold on us, it hides our spiritual condition. But money is also a trap in a way that many sins are not. And we see this throughout the Old and the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. 1 Timothy 6, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich, notice they fall into temptation. He doesn't say those who are rich, does he? Simply the desire for it. Opens up a whole new world of temptations. And then listen to the description. I kind of read this and I go, Paul, chill out. This is a little too strong, right? And fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Just the desire of wealth can plunge me into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, again, is the root of all kinds of evil. Now he doesn't say that money itself is, but it is the heart's attachment, power, approval, comfort, control. What I'm trying to get from money, it leads me into a place where I do not recognize my spiritual need, and he calls it a root. You know the only other thing that's called a root in scripture? Bitterness. You've seen how bitterness has destroyed people's lives. And you may have felt how bitterness has run your life, the way it changes how you see others, how you approach life, how you address issues in life. And he's saying money is that same kind of underlying issue that if we do not get a hold of, it has this power and this ability to set traps and snares. And it, he goes on and says it's through this craving that some have even wandered away from the faith. Money has this ability to pull us away from God and pierce themselves with many Payings. And then later on in verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul goes on and he says this As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, which means prideful, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. You notice that phrase? Uncertainty. What does riches give us? Certainty. I feel secure. I have what I need, I'm okay. And he's saying that's the issue, it's uncertain, but on God, and notice who richly provides, that what I have is not just something I've earned, it's a gift from God, the skills, the abilities, everything, and then he says to enjoy. But notice not to replace. God wants us to enjoy what we have, but it becomes a danger when it replaces the role that he wants to play in our lives. You know, Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he captures it this way. He says, when you start to make money and you start moving up the ladder and you start to be successful and you get promoted, so you come into more wealth, what almost always happens is you start to generalize your success into all areas of life. Has this happened to you? I was successful over here, so certainly I know how to do relationships. Relationships. I've made a lot of wealth and so certainly I can understand other challenges in life. Success has this way of building us up. You've been successful in one area of life so the natural tendency of the human heart is to generalize and to feel like I'm an expert in every area of life. I got this. Wealth tends to make you overconfident of your own intuition and hunches because your hunches have gotten you to the point that you're wealthy over here. And as a result, you believe that your hunch is about everybody and everything must be correct. You know, very few things in life raise us to that standard of expectation. And we see that reality in the life of this man. It's coming to Jesus, because the question is, what must I do? His life has been about accomplishment and he's done well. And his thought is there's something, there's some challenge, there's some quest. He knows he's missing something and he thinks it's simple enough that he can accomplish it. And where does Jesus take him to? He takes him to the cross, in a sense. He takes him to a place that feels like death. Because he's saying your money's not enough to rescue you. It's not enough to save you. There's nothing you can do. Rich young man, your condition is so much worse than you could possibly imagine. He thinks he's doing pretty good. And yet spiritually, there is a blindness in his life. It sets a trap. You know, and I've, if I can be honest, I've felt that. I've felt that. And the little success that I have, the little wealth that God has given me, I've felt superior to others. I think I can admit that, can't I? Look at what God's given me. Why would he bless me with this? And the place it was most apparent to me, it's often when I go overseas that it's most apparent. We don't tend to smell or taste the water that we swim in on a regular basis. But when you get out of your water and you go to another country and another place, you start to see things differently. And that's why we need to be global, not just local Christians. We need to listen to the church because the church globally can see our condition better sometimes than we can. And I spent a lot of uh, summers going to Kenya. We spent six different summers taking our church to Kenya. And in the beginning, when a pastor from Kenya would come, they would gather all the pastors, right? And you felt like a celebrity. And the reality is I have a great more education than they do. They don't have those resources. Some don't even have Bibles that they've read through, And these are pastors that are leading congregations. And they would set up these conferences where I would speak. And I felt important. And in some ways, that knowledge translated into spiritual maturity, right? I must be mature. They're coming to me. They're looking to me. They value me. They're honoring me. There's something that must be good and right about me. And there's nothing wrong with what I had to bring. But as I started to listen to their stories... And I realized at 8 o'clock in the morning, some of these men had already worked a full day's labor on the back of a motorcycle, driving people around, or they traveled two to three days. That was really humbling. On foot to get here, and at night they were sleeping around the church. And as I got to know them, I realized there was a spiritual depth and hunger to them that I wasn't even close to matching I wasn't gonna sleep outside. I wasn't gonna travel a couple of days to go hear somebody. I was okay, and there was this hunger in them that that the Lord just started convicting me with, this passion to know him, this passion to understand him, this passion to love God. And I realized my wealth and my situation had clouded me from something that was deeper and richer, and they had more to teach me in some ways than I could possibly teach them. And church in the West, we think we do church right. And we go bring our style of church to the rest of the world. And now, you know what's happening? The rest of the world's coming to us, and we need to listen. We need to listen. It doesn't matter the amount of wealth that somebody has, the position they have, God is stirring and he's moving across the globe in India and he's moving across the globe in China. And when they come to us, the Western church, there's things that we desperately need from them but the challenge is will we listen? And wealth has an ability to close our ears and to think I have what you're you're bringing. I'm okay, it's a trap. And the question I want us to get to is do you feel that? I do. Do you feel that weight, that reality in your own life? And we see that in the life of this, this rich young man. Again, if you go back to verse 20, and he said, teacher, I've done it. I have it. I've kept all these commandments from my youth, and I love, I appreciate verse 21. And Jesus looking at him, and the word look doesn't mean just to look. It means to gaze with intention. And he stared at him and his heart was broken, right? He loved him. That's God's attitude towards us. When we're blind and we think we have life together and we come to God, hey God, just, I just need a little bit of advice to just kind of address these issues. And he looks at us and he loves us. And see, that love is our security, isn't it? Power, approval, comfort, control. That love is our approval. That love is the power we need. That love is all that we need to to live life to the full. And he loved him. And in loving him, here comes the difficulty, right? See, his love is to lead us to trust. And there was an area in this man's life he could not, he couldn't trust Jesus, because he says, you know, take everything you have, sell it, and give it to the poor. And see, Jesus' love and this man's trust, he was trusting more in what he had than in the love that Christ had for him. And so he left with great, great sorrow. Money can trap us. First Timothy chapter six, verse six, says this. First Timothy 6.6, 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can't, we can't take anything out of the world. Now, what moment in life is Paul describing? It's death. Money gives us this sense of security that it's always going to be there. And why? Because for some of us, it has. And it's opened doors. It's provided opportunities. It's solved problems. But it's your moment of greatest need, which is death. You realize that's the moment of greatest vulnerability in life. That's when faith becomes an absolute reality, because you 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 realize your spiritual condition at the moment of death. There's nothing I can do. My life is being taken from me. I am powerless. I am vulnerable. And in that moment, he's saying money can't help you. And so why do we think it can help us spiritually today? Because we have this confidence in it that it's going to be there. And he's saying, it can't get you across that bridge. And what it's revealing is the depths of our spiritual need. That money isn't enough. And so we need something, we need something more. So again, how do we escape the trap of money? Verse 21. Again, looking at him and loving him, Jesus said, you lack, hey, just one thing. And that must have been comforting in the beginning. Oh, great. Just one thing. No big deal. And then he hears this word. Sell all that you have. Okay. Give it to the poor. Sounds like two things. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. And notice verse 22. And disheartened. By the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had noticed the phrase is great. And I wonder if the sorrow is measured by the great. The greater the possession, the greater the sorrow, the greater, the greater of letting that go. Now, what you'll find is, depending on the translation of the Bible you have, this verse 22 is translated in different ways. And so we see in verse 22 in the ESV, which is what we're reading from, he went away sorrowful. In the NIV, it says he went away sad. But in the King James, it says he went away grieving. Now, what's important about that word is it's the same word that's applied to Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. That when he was in the garden, you may remember that story that he was, he realized the cross was coming. And with the cross, what that meant was the Father's presence, his. His presence, who had always been with him, would be taken away. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 37, it says, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, it says he began to be sorrowful. Same picture, this rich young man, when Jesus says, Hey, just the mere idea of taking this and giving it to the poor, sorrow filled his heart. Here's Jesus in the garden, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. See, in Jesus' life, at this moment, the father was still with him. But the mere thought of losing the father took him to a place of deep grief and sorrow. Now, translate that story onto the life of the rich young man. See, in his life, money had become to this man what the father was to Jesus. In his life, money had become to this man. Think of it. What the father had become to Jesus, he was completely blind to it. Because what he's saying is sell all you have, not actually selling it, but the mere idea of selling it took him to a place of deep grief. What's it describing? It's describing the order of priorities in his heart. That money had ascended to the place of God. He didn't even know it. Didn't even realize it. And that's why Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or he says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. What he's describing is the priority of worship in life. And if we're not careful, what happens is something ascends to that place where God should be. And he becomes my source of comfort and he becomes my source of security. And God in his grace, listen, he may take it from you. I don't know if you've spoken to somebody who's lost everything, have you? It could even be health. Some people that have gone through cancer or health struggles. People that have been successful and they've lived their life in that and they've lost it. And though they wouldn't want to go through it again, you often hear the same story. You often hear the story of how God showed up. And how there's a relationship to God and to themselves and to others that they could not imagine was possible. And it only was possible when this thing, right, was ripped, was ripped from us. And they realized the importance that God had in their life. And God in his grace sometimes takes us through those circumstances. But it's better to learn it now, right? To realize what has a hold and a grip on my heart and on my life. And so the question is, is money as central to you as it is to the rich young man? And the only way I know how to check that is to ask the question, how would you respond? Come on now, how would you respond? Because I know you're thinking Jesus would never ask that, but he did. You know what we love to do? We love to alienate this story to the fringe stories in the New Testament, don't we? You know, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Every, that's universal, but not this story. And yet Jesus is asking something of this man, which I think we have to put ourselves in the story and ask of ourselves, what would, how would we respond? I'll be honest, I'd be scared to death. Absolutely terrified. You want me to, Jesus, I have a family. This makes no sense. I'd be, I'd be terrified. But the invitation is not just to give up. You notice he says, give up and, and come and follow me. I want to provide. How would you respond? If God presented that question to us, and because we don't think he would present that, he never will in that sense. We, we're keeping ourselves from being that dependent upon him. And so how do, we, how do we remove the place? How do we remove this hold and this power that money can have on our life? Two things, just quickly, is generosity and contentment. This scripture teaches generosity and contentment are the way to break free from the power that money has on our life. Because the reality is your money flows in the direction of what your heart loves. You know that. You just look at your life. Where is it easy to spend money? And what you spend money on, even if you have to spend money in that direction, it starts to become more and more important to you. The more your money moves in that direction, the more important it becomes. That's why when you go to, like, counseling, you want to pay for that counseling because I want to get something out of this. And the more you direct money towards something, the more important it becomes. And God says throughout Scripture, I want you to be generous. Now, in this case, generosity was 100%. And that does seem pretty high. But in the story of Zacchaeus, you know, it was half that. You read that story? Zacchaeus comes to faith, and Jesus says, I want you to give away 50%. Okay, that sounds a little bit better than 100%. And then we go to the Old Testament, and God had the principle of a tithe, 10%. And the question becomes, in my life, is it 100%, 50%, or 10%? I have no clue. Ask him. Ask him. Do you regularly ask God what he wants you to do with what you have? And here's the principle that God wants to bring in. We see in Jesus, it's the principle of generosity. Now watch the pattern. How often should you forgive? You already know this, right? Is it 10 times? You do it 10 times, you're done. I'm cutting you out of my will. I'm cutting you out of my life. I am finished with you. What does Jesus say? Principle of generosity, 70 times seven. There is no limit to how much you should forgive. Okay, how about love? Let's tr- how much should I love? What's Jesus, right? We come to Jesus just like the rich young man. How much do I forgive? How much do I love? And what does he say? Love as you have been loved. The measure of love you give is the measure of love. How much love did Jesus pour out? 10%? 50%? He is the rich young ruler who sold everything to possess us. Does that that begin to break your heart? He is the one that has given up everything. And so when it comes to forgiveness and love, it also comes to giving. Jason, I want you to trust my generosity. And I want you to be generous with what I have given you. The principle in the New Testament is not just 10%, it's generosity. And the question is, are you, are you learning to walk that path? And listen, if you're not, just simply start. Just start. Ask the Father. Father, what do you want me to do? I, I, want, I want you to have more of my heart and so I know I need to take a step of discipleship when it comes to my money and start someplace, start giving. And notice he says give to the poor. It means don't just give to the church. And I'm a pastor and I'm saying that. Should I be saying that? Give to the poor. Where, you know, often when you see in Zacchaeus, you see in the story of the rich young man, God cares about those who have little. Where are you exercising that that generosity? Not to those who can benefit us, right? But to those who cannot. Generosity frees the heart, but the second reality is contentment. And see, contentment's only possible if you know the deep idol in your heart. Because money's not your problem. It's what you think money can give you is the problem. And only when we exchange what we think money can give us and we find that Jesus is sufficient, does it begin to break the power that money has in our life. Contentment happens when we exchange what we think an object can give us for God. And here's what that sounds like. Hebrews 13, five. Hebrews 13, five. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, how? Because you need to hear this statement. I will never leave you or forsake you. Does that seem out of sort for you? He's talking about money. Do not allow money to gain a hold of your heart. And then he says, be content, how? By finding your contentment in the fact that I'm always with you. I will always be with you. I will always provide for you. But you have to be willing to, to bring. What you most want to me. And God loves to answer that prayer. You know, He says, What prayer offer, is offered in faith, is offered in my name, I, He longs to meet. He longs to show you that He is your comforter. And they can provide greater comfort than the world can, that He is my approval. I don't need to get approval from others. I have the approval of my Father. And to the degree I experience that and recognize that and expose myself to God's love and approval, to that Degree, it starts to break the power that idols have over our heart and our life. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. If you didn't grab the elements when you came in, I want to give you that opportunity. Those elements are available in the back. They're also available up front. And, and listen, I don't know how God has been working in this time together, but I know God's at work. And the Spirit of God is moving among us. He is God's present here. The Trinity is here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is working. He's moving. And the question is, are we, are we willing to respond to him? And it may have nothing. It's okay if it has nothing to do with the message I just spent my whole week investing into. <laughs> it doesn't matter. This isn't about simply money. It's about getting our heart and our life right with our Father. And so, whatever work that means for you, it's repentance and faith. What God loves is need. And God goes where He's needed. Do you know how much you need Him? And as we hold those communion elements, it's an opportunity to recognize our acceptance is through His, his death and His resurrection that Jesus is my life and he's given me access to the Father. And so let's spend the next few moments just simply dealing with whatever the Father's put on your heart. Let's meet him together.